We all seek for identity and distinction in the world. Every human being wants to know who they are and that what they are and who they are is not what everyone else is. We need our own place, our own niche, our own spot. Um, So you can think of this in the terms of we need badges that we wear that tell us we belong. And we need shining stars of success to be granted to us when we're successful. We need these things. Consider sheriffs. Got the sheriff in town, and he's got his badge that lets us know that he represents the law. He has the authority, which distinguishes him from a common citizen. The badge is part of his identity and his distinction. Shining golden stars that teachers give to their students or happy faces on their papers when to distinguish you did a good job, this is good work from what is not good work. Or even as you get older, it's more like grades and diplomas and degrees. You're awarded those to distinguish your good work from your bad work. Um, Even corporations use logos so that we can identify who they are. This is their identity. And, and this, this logo, this face, the green mermaid or whatever, makes this coffee different from that coffee. We need, also as humans, badges that tell us where we belong. And we need shining stars that tell us that we have been successful when we have been. This is our second message in the series, Cruciformed. Cruciformed is the cross-shaped life, and we're looking at this through Lent. So um, this is that 40-day period where we do extended prayer and fasting because it is our desire to take up our cross and follow Jesus through his passion to Easter Sunday. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after me. And that's what we are seeking to do as we are also looking at the idea of what does it look like to carry our cross? What does it look like to be cruciformed? So we know this, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, twice there Paul tells us what the cruciformed life looks like. On one hand, a cross-shaped life is absolute foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross, that's where criminals go, that's where losers die. And it's very true. Losers died on the cross. A remarkable place for Jesus to take on our behalf. He didn't just die. We must understand this. Jesus didn't just come to die. We must be specific. He came to be crucified, which was the most humiliating and painful form of execution available at the day. It's folly to those who are perishing. Then, the next part of the verse, Paul says, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. We have discovered in the cross of Christ that through the brokenness of the human life, there the power of God floods in the way water will seep into a crack. The power of God comes into our cracked and broken places. So it's foolishness to those that are perishing. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that it's the mind of Christ, that the cross is the shape of his thinking. This is how Christ thought A cruciformed, a Christ-like mind is one that is biased toward humility. Christ seemed to seek out not the important people in Jerusalem, for most of his ministry was in his Galilean redneck, backneck country place called Galilee. They even, they, they were rednecks of their sort. If there were rednecks in Israel, that was the Galileans. They were known for their dialect and their lingo and their poverty and their living differently than the proper urban Jews of Jerusalem. And he always sought those who were hurting, those who needed him. He was never too important not to stoop down to the children or blind Bartimaeus crying out for mercy on the roadside. These are those whom the others said, shut up, go away, tell the Canaanite woman to leave us. He comes to them. The mind of Christ had a bias toward humility, or as Henry Nouwen called it, a downward mobility. He always moved down. This is the cruciformed life. But tonight we're going to see that the cruciformed life is our identity. It is our logo. The cross is our logo. Now please don't think we're incorporating the church. Lord, let that never be. 
But the cross stands for who we are. It's our identity and it distinguishes us from the world. We do not draw the sword. That's Caesar's play. Caesar's known for the sword. Caesar's the lion who executes. But the church, Christ, his people are known for the cross. We take the sword into us before we shove it into other people. This is our identity. It's our badge of belonging, the cross. It's our shining star of success, which makes the world go, what? That's success? We need this identity because we can be so caught up by the seductions of the spirit of this age, which thirsts and lusts for power. And we prayed that at the end of our prayer, didn't we? Lord, give me not the spirit of laziness, faint-heartedness, lust for power, or idle talk. Lust for power, that is not the cruciform life. So tonight, identity. It comes right here, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After Israel had, in the Old Testament, walked away from God's word and went into idolatry and became like all the other nations, they didn't know their identity, they didn't know their distinction, they became like everybody else. After that had happened and they went into exile and lost their kingdom, When God graciously brought them back to Jerusalem, there was a movement of devout Jews who were determined to never let it happen again. We will never go after the ways of Gentiles and after the ways of the world. We will make sure we know our identity and we will make ourselves distinct from the pagan nations. So, this devout group grew in their power, grew in their influence, and grew in their devotedness, and later became known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were about polishing that badge and shining that shiny star so that the Jews knew who they were and what they were distinct from. And so there were four specific laws or badges that they put on the Jewish breastplate. These were keeping of the Sabbath. Pagan nations had no Sabbath. This made Jews distinct. It also made your work relations separate because you can't work with people on Saturdays. It was very different. It made them different. People, oh, those people. The Sabbath, the worship of one God because everybody else worshiped many gods. One God was a novelty. So they didn't get involved themselves in anything that, like, like games that you go attend. They wouldn't involve themselves with that because they were usually honored multiple gods at these games. No, nope, we aren't those people. Circumcision, a big one. This was the physical mark on their body, in their flesh, that said, we are not Gentile pagans. We are the Jewish people of God, and we follow his law. And then... Um, I use the word kosher because it helps us think about today. They wouldn't have used the word back then. But their special diet, a kosher diet, that, that they followed the Levitical laws in chapter 11 of Le- Leviticus. That they couldn't eat certain things and they ate certain things. And that did not just mean, well, I'm going to take this option on the menu. That actually was more inclusive to say, we will not eat with certain people. If they don't eat clean food, we don't eat with them. Thus, Peter got into a lot of trouble with the Jews when they found out that he went into a Gentile house. He may not have eaten their pork, but by being with them, he was unclean. These are the four distinctions that they highlighted and made sure they emphasized everybody kept to make them different. This was the badge that they wore. The Sabbath, one God, circumcision, and their diet. Now, In the book of Galatians, here's what's happening. 
After Paul's first missionary journey, he planted these churches. Galatia, you might think of as a state. It's in southern Asia Minor. It's a large area, and there's several churches involved in the, in the Galatia area. Paul planted these churches, and then over time, um, Gentiles began to pour in in greater numbers. So the Jewish Christians had this predicament on their hands. Either they were going to demand that the Gentile Christians wear the badge of the Sabbath. One God wasn't a problem because, well, Christians already hold to that. But also the circumcision and the kosher diet. Either they're going to make the Gentiles wear those badges and thus make the gospel of Christ's grace nullified, or they were going to just ignore the Gentiles as only half-saved. I mean, they know Christ and all, but they're just like the world. They're just like the other Gentiles. There's nothing distinct about them other than their belief in Christ. So they're secondary, second-rate Christians. That was the dilemma. It seems from his letter that what they opted to do was to force Gentiles to take on these badges, to make them different than the Gentiles they're saved from. Well, to Paul, this was an urgent issue. This was not to be taken lightly. Oh, okay, that's just their thing. They're just a legalistic fellowship. No, Paul was in on them like a shark on a bleeding fish. He smelled blood and he went after them and he said, no, this is not going to happen, not in my churches. Here's a very strongly worded letter. And it's an urgent letter. You get the sense that Paul could not get this letter published fast enough. First example, Paul usually begins his letters with thanksgiving. You guys are doing great. I thank God for you. Keep on going, lads. Good job. He might correct them a little bit later, but he's always thanking them at first. Not in Galatians. Look at verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. Be in play, this is where his thanksgiving would usually be, but instead he says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The Greek is very strong in that wording there. And we have said, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Chapter 3, he calls them foolish how would you like it if I came up here? You guys are fools. All of you are fools. He says that to them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What, God had to kind of energize you with the Spirit, now you're going to finish it all by your little snip-snip and diets? That's ridiculous. He condemns circumcision as undermining the gospel in chapter 5, verse 2. 5, verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. Oof. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You become a prisoner to the law. You are severed. Clever. You see what Paul is doing there? Clever play on words. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And then, in verse 12, he sarcastically blesses what the message calls the knife-happy circumcisers. Verse 12, Oh, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> Paul is very sassy and sarcastic in parts of this letter. So, um, you can imagine, uh, I, th I think it's the message. Some other like very loose translation says, I wish that they would let their knife slip. That's what they translate verse 12 as. So, emasculate themselves. 
Paul is using urgent language because this is an urgent matter. If we all need identity, if we need badges of belonging and shining stars of success to distinguish ourselves, what is it that gives us that status? Paul says it is not circumcision or the works of the law, including the Sabbath and your diets. So your calendars, your diets, and your, what you're doing to your body, this isn't it. This is what he's summarizing. So what you can basically say, Galatians, is, is Paul is saying that Christ is not an addition to the law. He's the completion of it. It's not, okay, keep on doing your, 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 your Jewish religion, and now you have Christ on top of that. So it's like, we're all good if we mess up. He's, by the way, we do this. We do this. It's not keep living your American culture just like every other American and just sprinkle Christ on top as if that little rainbow sprinkle thing makes you different. No, Christ is the completion of the law, meaning you don't do circumcision anymore. You're, you're not circumcised into the Jewish faith. You're baptized into the Christian person, Christ himself. We're not orienting ourselves around an ethnicity. We're orienting ourselves around a person, a savior, him who gave himself because he loved us. We are not just sprinkling Christ into our lives. We are reorienting ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. To be cruciformed is to be crucified with Christ so that what we once were is done away with. This is our badge. This is what shows us we belong is crucifixion. Christ does not simply get added on. He is the completion of all things. All things are leading up to him. And so where we are in our passage, chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, this comes actually as the conclusion of a conversation that Paul has with Peter. The conversation begins in verse 11. What Paul is doing in this letter is he's, in chapter 1 he says, look, I received the gospel by revelation from God. I didn't learn it from anybody. God called me to preach that Gentiles are welcome into the church without circumcision. God showed me that. Then in chapter 2 he says, I went to the apostles in Jerusalem, shared the gospel with them, and they said, yes, brother, go right on. You are preaching the right gospel. So Paul says, God has affirmed what I'm preaching. The apostles in Jerusalem affirm what I am preaching. And Peter himself, when I pointed out that he was in error, did not correct me. So Paul's giving him three proofs that what he's preaching is the gospel. And now here's that moment when he corrects Peter, and Peter is silent. It's in 2 verse 11. He says, now, when Cephas, it's Peter, remember that was one of, it's the Aramaic of his name, Peter. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, there was a little powwow they had in Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For there were certain men, uh, for, for before certain men came from James, you remember James was the, was, the, was the pastor of Jerusalem, so he's got a big Jewish cohort with him. So before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Good move. But when they came, James and his Jewish cohort, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party are those Christian Jews who believe in circumcision as necessary. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Oh, Barney, no, you didn't. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. Now, this is bold, because in Jewish polite society, you don't condemn people in public. You pull them aside. Even as Peter pulled Jesus aside when he tried to say, you're not going to the cross, Jesus. But he doesn't pull Peter aside. Paul says right there in front of everybody to hear, because to him this is so important, everybody needs to hear, because you are actually 
threatening the gospel in this hypocrisy. Here you're pretending that Gentiles are equal, but as soon as the circumcision party and Pastor James comes on in into the room, you're like, oh no, Gentiles are secondary. I favor the circumcised. What Peter's actions are doing is they're inconsistent with him thinking, oh, Gentiles are fully Christians. No, they're not. When you can't eat with them because you're afraid the Jews will say, oh, Peter, you're unclean by eating with them. You are such a hypocrite, Peter. So he gives it to him in his face so that Barnabas can hear it, so that those around him can hear it, so that everybody knows the gospel is not to be messed with. 14. But when I saw that, it was not in step. I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, in the English Standard, and I believe the New King James, the quotes end here, and verse 15 sounds like Paul's just writing a letter now. Actually, he continues the plurality. Um, so he, it sounds like he is talking to Peter still, and many commentaries suggested as much. So that in verse 15 to the end of our chapter, this is essentially what he said to Peter. He kept talking to him, and he said, We, you and me, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. What's he saying? He's saying in verses 15 and 16 there, that our badge of belonging to Christ comes not through the works of the law. Sabbath keeping, diet keeping, circumcision. These things don't bring us justification. Can mean justified, never sinned. It does not bring us into the family God. It does not make us belong to him. Those little works, no. No, no, no. Circumcision, diet keeping, Sabbath keeping, those are marks of Jewishness, but marks of belonging to Christ have nothing to do with those works of the flesh or of the law. It's faith, he says. It's faith in Christ. That is our badge. That is our mark. That is what tells us we belong to him. So in verse 17, but... If in our endeavor to be justified, that, think of that when he says that. It's like, in our endeavor to wear the badge that we belong to Christ. If in our endeavor to do that, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? No, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, as I was trying to keep the law... I kept breaking it, so the law killed me. And now he's saying, we put the law aside. I died to it. The law has moved aside. We're now in Christ by faith. So, if what I tore down, the law, I then go and rebuild back up, saying, but I, I, I tore the law down because I went to Christ, but if I now go back and say, oh, let me rebuild that, what, what he's saying is, my going back to rebuild that says that I, I found Christ inferior. I, I didn't find him enough. It confirms that I am indeed a sinner. And that's when he comes to verse 20. That the flesh, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The flesh is no longer the vessel that shows us or tells us who we are and where we belong. Where is circumcision? It's in the flesh. Where is diet keeping? It's in the flesh. Where is Sabbath keeping? It's in the flesh. Where is race? It's in the flesh. Where is gender and sexuality? It's in the flesh. Where is social status? It's in the flesh. The life I now live in the flesh, I have removed these identifiers, and now it's faith in the Son of God. This is the essence of Paul's message to Peter. So how does the world, we've talked about the Jews and Galatians, but how does the world find their identity and their distinction? 
What kind of badges are they boasting of? What kind of shining stars are they polishing? It wouldn't surprise you, would it, that in the world, our identity is marked in our flesh. Here are the three big ones. Race and ethnicity. We don't have to think very hard here. Black Lives Matter, immigration debates, and China virus, as some people call it. All of these have racial connotations. Because we are very aware of ethnicity and race in our culture. We're almost hyper-aware. We're almost too aware. We also have um, social status is one of the places where we're finding our identities. It's uh, in income levels. (laughs) Stimulus checks are coming, and all of a sudden, everyone's marked by their income level, whether you're worthy or not for it. Haven't always thought about my income level in that way until those started rolling around like, ooh, do I qualify? (laughs) Um, Education. We care so much about what name we graduate from that some people cheat in their applications. We've heard about that scandal, rich people paying their way in. We have politics, part of our identity now. Politics are no longer this thing that we vote for to make our nation run. They are driven purely by, this is what side I'm on, and this is who I am. And so therefore, I like these things, and this music, and these states, and these... If if you're proud about carrying a gun, we all know what party you're from. That's how much this has become our identity It's impossible to have a pro-life Democrat nowadays. It's not impossible. They actually exist. But the way our society labels, that's that's seemingly unheard of. So apparently, if you're pro-life, you have to be a Republican. Or if you want to carry a gun, you have to be a Republican. Or if you care for the poor, you have to be a Democrat. This is the way we frame our conversation because this is the way we identify people through politics. And in this, too, religion plays a very minor role these days because religion's actually lumped into politics now. Christians are this party mostly, and then the liberal Christians are this party mostly. And, and religion seems to be the sub-note in our identity. It's really not even brought up a lot. So, there, so you have race and ethnicity, you have social status, and then third, we have gender and sexuality tremendous identity. And in fact, well, we all know what's going on, but a lot of what's driving this is people, especially young people, are just looking for who they are. They're looking for love. They're looking for acceptance. And much, sometimes what they're choosing to turn to is, well, this isn't working out for me, so I want to be this. I'm going to make a declaration, and maybe I'll get love and acceptance from a certain community that will actually love and accept me if I say this. These are the badges of the flesh in our world. So yeah, it's not circumcision today. It's not diet keeping. It's not the Sabbath. But it is race and ethnicity. It's social status, and it's gender and, 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 uh, and sexuality. Um, actually, I happened to stumble upon in um, in the Washington Post. They have this um, section where it's called the uh, "About Us," a section of articles, and it's they. What do they define as? They say it's an initiative to cover issues of identity in the United States. So you read over. All I did is I read over the headlines, and you know what all of them cover? Race. Social status, sexuality, race. Oh, article after article after article. These are the badges we boast in this nation and in our culture. Now what happens and what we're seeing in our midst is when when we put our identity in the flesh, in the body of the person, when we do that, we actually create idolatry. Because we're looking to these identities to save us. And when we look at these to save us, the idolatry quickly becomes a controversy because they now consume our attention. They consume our cultural conversation. So that all we ever read about, hear about, talk about, if it's in the culture, is all of these identity issues. 
And so once it becomes idolatry, then it becomes controversy. It then leads ultimately to what we're all feeling, hostility. Because when, when the identity becomes our salvation, when the identity becomes all we think about and all we're consumed about, we get so entrenched in what we want to be and who we think we are that we cannot conceive of anybody in the middle. And we're constantly calling for people to be on one side or the other. And it leads to hostility. Because, well, you're on that side and you're on that side. And can you imagine if, if circumcision was this big of a deal today in the church? We would have hostility from the circumcision party and the liberation party. <laughs> Let's not go there yet. Okay, so we see, we see what's going on in Galatians. We see what's going on in our culture. Let's look at Galatians 2.20 again for some guidance here. So I think it should be clear, as we've read this now a couple times, that for the Christian, our badges of identity, our shining stars of success, our distinction does not come from the flesh. It doesn't come from the flesh. It comes by faith in Christ. Faith is actually our marker, and it's faith in the person of Christ. So here's the superiority of faith over flesh. Of having faith in Christ, my identity in the faith of Christ. The superiority is threefold. First, it gives me individuality. It gives me individuality. If you'll notice in, our, in verse 20 again, um, I'm going to read it again. I want you to count the personal, first person, singular, Pronouns, Because up to this point, Paul had been saying we to Peter. Suddenly he shifts to, well, you'll hear it. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Seven. Seven times. There's so many times in this single verse and if it was today, I'd probably be like, oh, he's just one of those people as a self-absorbed snowflake. But that is not the case. Paul almost always is talking about the church as a plural. You, you guys, a congregation of fellowship. But here, this gets so important to him that Paul personalizes the truth of this passage. I have been crucified with Christ. And then, of course, that last part is so moving. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. You can, all, you can hear him in another letter. The chief of sinners. The one who persecuted the church. But by the grace of God I am what I am. He loved me. You see the advantage of faith. Over finding our identity in the flesh. Is that it gives us individuality. And, but here's the irony. The irony is that the world is looking for the same thing. But by looking for it in their flesh, they're actually losing their individuality. Because what happens when we're seeking after racial, social, and sexual identity? What happens? Well, here you go. Racial, social, and sexual identities have never given themselves for me. Nor... Have they remained the same for 2,000 years? They always change what's required of me to be accepted. Just think in your own lifetime how much these issues have changed. And they conform me to look like everybody else. All these issues and the agendas being thrown out there, it, it's trying to force us all to think the same way and be the same way. There's no individuality. It's all in the name of individuality, but the spirit behind this is not Christ. So it's actually just molding us all into the same lump of imitators of one another. This is what identity in the flesh does, is it causes us to seek to conform ourselves in order to be accepted. Because acceptance is, I won't be loved until I meet the requirements of the people I want to be loved by. Conversely, when we find our identity only in Christ, or by faith in Christ, we get someone who has given himself for us. And not just us, but for me. I am an individual he loves and gave himself for. 
Christ hasn't changed or demanded anything different for, over t- for almost 2,000 years. He's calling me the exact same way he called Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, St. John of Cassian, St. John of Sinai, St. Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Paul and Peter and John the Evangelist. The exact same way. And only he can truly make me my unique self because he made me. He knows what my unique true self is. I have no idea. I might be like, oh, this is what I want everyone to see me as. This is what I want to be. But only Christ knows what he has made me for and where I will thrive. So as Paul is noticing, faith in Christ is a huge advantage to finding our identity in the flesh because it individualizes us. Christ didn't just, you're not just part of the lump. He's like, oh yeah, all those people, I died for them. Yeah, I did that. Genie, he came for you. He came for Michael Scott, and he came for Wayne, and he knew our names as he came. He's individualized us, and he loves us each individually, and he's calling each of us to walk with him so that when, and we've been talking since Lent, we've been talking about extended prayer and fasting, so that he doesn't say, you must, you must, Billy, fast exactly the way Pastor Brandon fasts. Because I'm just one blanket. No, he understands each of our needs, each of our physical uh, places of health, and, and what is what will bring us closer to God. He's calling each of us in an individual way. But, unless we get too postmodern here, he's not calling all of us to do this my way. Because the individuality comes with solidarity. That's the second thing we see here, is that the, oops, the advantage of our identity by faith in Christ, is that he, he calls us as an individual, but he also unites our individuality, our personality. The, the person he's made us, he unites and interweaves us in Christ, his son, so that Christ is in me and I am in Christ and that there is this mutual indwelling. Remember like we did the whole like last month with partakers of the divine nature. So he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I was one with him there on the cross. When I was baptized into Christ, God saw me as in Christ and Christ as in me. God sees us as one. He doesn't see Brandon, the vulgar. He sees Brandon crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, Paul's saying. It's not just, it's not just Pastor Brandon living, but it's Christ in Pastor Brandon living. This takes some time to get our minds around. We'll circle around back to that at the end, I think. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, there's a solidarity. There's this unity with Christ so that I don't just, I'm an individual and I just do Jesus my way. A lot of that, a lot of like cheesy, shallow Christianity. But what's actually happening, what we want is we don't want to fit Christ into our life. That's the mentality usually. But we want to fit our life into Christ. He's the standard. He's our identity. So I will change myself. I will become like him as he comes into me. He's the one changing me. So the benefits of faith is individuality, it's solidarity. And third, it's liberty. It's liberty. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 27. 327, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Verse 27, if you've been baptized into Christ, so if you're in Christ, then verse 28 is the reality. You are no longer identified by the flesh. And what does he name? Jew or Greek? Race and ethnicity. Slave nor free? It's your social status. Male nor female? It's your gender and sexuality. 
Christ is saying these things are no longer what make us who we are. Oh, of course, there are men and women in this room. We don't deny that. We're not some third option in here. But that's not what identifies Pastor Brandon anymore. I'm not superior as a man or superior or you're not superior as a woman. I shouldn't say I'm not superior as a woman either. That gets confusing, but and so forth. So that's what Paul's saying is that there's liberty. And then you'll notice in chapter 5, verse 1, so we're no longer tied to these fleshly limitations, but uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, you can see, you can see now his concluding chapter here, um, for, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The badges of the flesh divide us and rank us. They rank us. And that's what we see in our society, is this fight between men and women and rights. And, and, and you go down the list. Because when our identity is marked in the flesh, when it's not in Christ and faith in Christ, it will divide us, it will rank us, it will tell us who is who all the time. But the badge of faith brings equality, it brings solidarity, it brings unity in Christ without taking away our individuality. That's true freedom. So I become a self, I become uniquely Brandon when I'm in Christ, you become uniquely Billy when you're in Christ, and yet we aren't divided over those things. It somehow unifies us. So those are, um, uh, those are the benefits. Um, I want to I share with you, though, that if you want to find your identity in Christ, by faith in Christ, you will need to write a eulogy for yourself. Because as I've been crucified with Christ, there's a death going on here. I um I remembered when when this passage was selected as part of our cruciform series, I recalled a journal entry I wrote on November seventh, two thousand nineteen, and this was my it's actually the first page of the journal of the current one I'm in. So the first page of that one it says it says this. I skipped some super personal parts, so don't worry. You don't have to feel like this is gonna be cringe. But so I kept this general. But it says this. To whom it may concern, Pastor Brandon James McCulloch has died. While many wished to die peacefully and without pain, he did not. He was crucified. It came with pain and humiliation. There was a sense of loss and confusion, a wondering if he had done anything well. It was slow, at times intense, and at times dull. So go ahead. Criticize his flaws, attack his beliefs, exploit his weaknesses. It will make no difference, for Brandon is dead. Christ now lives in him. The external person is buried. His eternal resurrected self has emerged from the rend in his soul. Brandon is not enough, so he gave all he has to Jesus, who took it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it out. Sincerely, the new name only Christ knows. You, the liberty, though, when we can write that eulogy and realize, yep, whatever, whatever is going to happen to Brandon, I need to understand that he's just, I've created what I wanted Brandon to be, but when he's dead, I get to be what Christ is making me as he dwells in me. And that's liberating. That is resurrection life in our midst. So how, let's, let's conclude with this. Take up your cross. That's what we're being called to. The cruciform life takes up our cross, and this is our badge. Yep, the world's not going to applaud us. Oh, yay, you humble people, you broken people, you crucified people. They're going to call you to use your strength, to push yourself around, to demand your rights. They're going to call you to be like an American. No, we're going to take up our cross, and we're going to follow Christ. This is the badge we proudly wear. So how do we do this? There's three ways to take up our cross. Be crucified with Christ. First, be crucified through surrender. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. It means surrender. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't forced. He willingly gave himself as an offering. We are crucified with Christ through surrender. He's not going to take Michael Beavers and say, well, I'm going to get it done in you. 
It only happens. It only happens if Michael Beaver says, have your way. It requires absolute surrender. Andrew Murray, in his excellent book, um, oh, what is it called? Abiding in Christ, I think. He says this, the entire surrender of all self-will, the complete denial of the flesh, of its every desire and pleasure, the perfect separation from the world in all its ways of thinking and acting, the losing and hating of one's life, the giving up of self and its interests for the sake of others. This is the disposition which marks him who has taken up Christ's cross and seeks to say, I have been crucified with Christ. That's every part of us completely yield to him. Your way, Father, your way. I'm crucified. My dreams are your dreams. I don't have dreams. They're your dreams. You're working these. You're rebirthing these in me. Second, be crucified. So first, crucified through surrender. Be crucified through brokenness. I can't do better than this quote by Roy Hessian in his book, The Calvary Road. The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands for its own rights, and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will, admits its wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words... It is dying to self and self-attitudes. But oh, the first party says there that he cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This is why it starts with surrender. Surrender will lead you to brokenness. True surrender, absolute surrender, you will find yourself a broken human being. Oh, I thought I could do these things and I can't. I thought I was great and I'm not. That's a good place, brothers and sisters. This is the cruciformed life. Your, your therapist might tell you, other, oh, no, no, you're, fine. you're a great person. It's, it's probably your dad that did that to you. I, I do not, by the way, I'm not making fun of therapy, just that form of it. Um, brokenness, it starts, brokenness starts when we confess our sins, and we begin to recognize that we are miserable, wretched sinners, and then it moves on to Humility. When I realize who I really am, I cannot be arrogant before God. I cannot be anything but given over to him and say, I can't do it without you. It's all you. I'm poor in spirit, Jesus called it. There's nothing I have to offer. There's nothing good that I am without your grace and your life in me. And with it here in me, now something can happen because it's not Brandon who lives, but Christ in Brandon who's living. Christ in Brandon who's living and serving and doing that's brokenness. It's the only way in. It starts with a confession. It leads to humility. Christ will break us if we will practice on a day-to-day basis confession and humility day after day after day. This is what's so important at the beginning of our prayer hour. We always confess our sins, even though it's probably the most uncomfortable part in the, human, in the Christian existence. Um, even when people deal with you in mean ways, it means that every human being who tries and vexes you becomes an opportunity for humility. <laughs> because no longer do I say, oh, you can't, talk, you, you can't talk to me like that. Let me put you in your place. We take these as opportunities to be broken and humbled. This is the cruciformed life. So we are, cruciform, we are cru- we're crucified through surrender, we're crucified through brokenness, and we're crucified finally through faith. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. In life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Because the flesh seeks security in what it can do and what it can see and what it can control. It's always what the flesh looks for. But faith is okay if it doesn't have that. Andrew Murray. To die to self or come from under its power is not cannot be done by any active resistance can make it I don't know what I'm reading anymore let me just skip to Hessian it's similar 
He says this, the only life that pleases God, the only life that pleases God and that can be victorious is his life. The only life that pleases God and can be victorious is his life. Thank goodness that Christ is in me. Never our life, no matter how hard we try, but inasmuch as our self-centered life is the exact opposite as his, we can never be filled with his life unless we are prepared for God to bring our life constantly to death. And in that, we must cooperate by our moral choice. It's through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how I please God. That's how I live the cruciform life. It isn't, as we go through Lent, you can get proud and say, I'm fasting, I've never done this, this is amazing, I'm doing it, and I'm praying more. God must be so pleased. No, he's not. He's pleased by Christ in you. And we do these things because of Christ in us. If it's not through that faith in Christ, then it means absolutely nothing. You're just keeping a kosher diet, or you're just practicing the Sabbath, or circumcising yourself. That's all it means. But by faith in Christ, you are allowing Christ in you to live through you. And that's the life that pleases God. He is not demanding more of us. He's not putting the law upon us. He's not saying Christ is an addition to all these things I've asked you to do. He's saying Christ is the completion of everything. Everything you want to be, everything you're lacking, everything that you, you're just wishing that you would have had. You just want a better identity or more distinction. You want to know who you are. He's saying all of this is completed in Christ. You just must let go of your life and let the Christ in you live through you. Because that's who you really are. And until the Christian recognizes that you're actually already dead and you were crucified with Christ on the cross, you actually don't get your Christian walk at all. You're just a human saying, I'm doing religious things and I'm going to get it done. You might as well be a Muslim. This no different. Our distinction, what makes us unique, our identity, the badge we wear, the shining star upon our head, is that we have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live not in the flesh, but by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. So, brothers and sisters, will we take up our cross? Will we follow Christ? And will we walk the cruciformed life? Father, we ask that it would be true of us.